Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 66, Cotton Mather Really Hated Pirates. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss some of the most influential writings of Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was among the last of the Puritans. He is remembered for his role in the Salem Witch Trials, but he was the childhood minister to Ben Franklin, ultimate symbol of the American Enlightenment, and he died less than 50 years before our Declaration of Independence was signed. In this episode, we're going to learn about Mather's attempts to redeem pirates who were sentenced to death in Boston before they reached the gallows. Along the way, we'll examine Puritan execution sermons more broadly as a genre of writing that became increasingly popular in the late 17th century, and the fundamental conflict between rigid, hierarchical Puritan societies and the fledgling democracies that could be found on board a pirate ship. But before we talk about Puritans and pirates, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Since we're going to be talking about Cotton Mather and pirates this week, it only makes sense to feature Copps Hill Burying Ground as our historic site. Located along the Freedom Trail in Boston's North End, Copps Hill overlooks the mouth of the Charles River and the site of one of the mass executions of pirates that we'll discuss in this week's episode. In our episode about the Motherbrook, we talked about Boston's early experiments with windmills and discussed a windmill that was moved to Copps Hill in 1632. The burying ground at Copps Hill saw its first use in 1659, becoming Boston's second cemetery. It's home to the Mather family tomb, which was the final resting place of Cotton Mather, as well as his father Increase and his uncle Samuel Mather. Other notables in the cemetery include Prince Hall, a free black man who fought in the American Revolution and founded a new form of Freemasonry. A triple headstone marks the resting place of George Worthylake, the first keeper of Boston Light, and of his family, who all drowned while rowing out to the lighthouse. Robert Newman, sexton of the nearby Old North Church, who climbed the stairs one April day in 1775 to hang two lanterns from the belfry. And Edmund Hart, the shipbuilder who constructed the USS Constitution, which itself is visible across the river in Charlestown. Tourists often stop to marvel at the headstone of Captain Daniel Malcolm, which is topped by a skull and crossbones and pockmarked by musket balls. While he wasn't a pirate, Malcolm was a smuggler, and he was a leader in the resistance against the Townsend Acts. During the Siege of Boston in 1775 and 1776, British soldiers are said to have used his prominent headstone for target practice. All of your out-of-town visitors are going to want to visit Old North Church, and the burying ground is just steps away. It's an easy walk up Salem Street from the Rose Kennedy Greenway or the Haymarket Tea. The cemetery is open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with no charge. And for our upcoming event this week, we'll be sending you down to Weymouth. If you recall our series on pirates last summer, you'll recall that the last surviving member of Black Sam Bellamy's pirate crew aboard the ship Weta was sold into slavery and purchased by a man named John Quincy. John Quincy had a granddaughter named Abigail Smith, who would eventually marry John Adams. Despite having been raised in a slave-owning household, our girl Abigail was staunchly opposed to the institution of slavery. While John was away at the First Continental Congress in 1774 fighting to obtain liberty for his fellow Americans, Abigail wrote to him with her feelings on the subject. I wish most sincerely that there was not a slave in the province. It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me. Fight ourselves for what we daily are robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. You know my mind upon this subject. A year later, she learned that the British Navy had burned the town of Falmouth, now Portland, Maine, and said, We have done evil, or our enemies would be at peace with us. The sin of slavery is not washed away. So, it's only appropriate that the Abigail Adams Historical Society should host an author talk about the book Between Slavery and Freedom, Free People of Color in America, From Settlement to Civil War, at the Tufts Library in Weymouth on February 12th. Author Julie Winch is a historian who teaches at UMass Boston and has written at least three previous books on the experiences of free black families in early America. From their website, 
During her presentation, Ms. Winch will address the topic of slavery in Massachusetts, the effect of the American Revolution on its demise, and the efforts of ex-slaves to find a place for themselves in the post-revolutionary era. Time will be allowed for audience questions, and books will be available for purchase. The event starts at 7 p.m., admission is free, and reservations are not necessary. We'll have a link to more information in the show notes this week. From our 21st century vantage, we view Puritan Massachusetts in the 1600s and even the early 1700s as a society with strict laws and almost unimaginably strict consequences. We read the Scarlet Letter, we hear about the harsh punishments meted out to Quakers, and about the series of terrifying executions during the Salem witch hysteria, and we picture a land where you could be whipped or branded or even put to death for next to nothing. As we'll see, the real Massachusetts Bay Colony was a place where the laws were both more strict and more lenient than you'd think. Yes, it was a theocracy, where the accumulated body of English common law tended to take a backseat to harsh biblical punishments lifted straight from Leviticus. But it was also a place where the full measure of the law was rarely applied. Writing in the William and Mary Quarterly, Jules Zanger describes what we might think of as the practical leniency of Puritan law. The English criminal code developed under the necessity of controlling and intimidating a large landless and jobless population was, by the 17th century, extremely harsh and oppressive. The New England magistrate found many of the severe elements in English law, well-suited as they might have been for controlling great numbers of hungry and dangerous men without work, exceedingly ill-suited to conditions in the Bay Colony. Much of the essay then focuses on instances of remission, which you can think of as a sort of suspended sentence of the 1600s. For a fine, admit that the offender paid either a lower amount than the fine the courts had imposed, or perhaps nothing at all, as long as they did not commit another crime. The general court's extensive use of remission was to an important degree its response to pressures generated by the shortage of labor and money in the colony. This acute shortage of labor was intensified by the constant need for men to protect the settlements from the Indians. And with that dated language, keep in mind that it was written in 1965. So even though the court might impose a harsh punishment for some seemingly minor crime, the offender probably wouldn't see the full measure of that sentence. In a society where there was a critical shortage of laborers and soldiers, it made no sense at all to imprison a convicted criminal for a long period of time. Instead, an offender might be forced into indentured servitude. For offenses which were serious enough to seem to demand imprisonment, one solution was to commit the offender to some degree of private bondage rather than to give him a jail term. That same labor shortage drove judges to curtail the death penalty and to limit corporal punishment to sentences that wouldn't permanently prevent someone from working and pulling their own weight in the colony. Because of this man shortage, the magistrates of the Bay Colony were reluctant to impose punishments which would permanently, or even for long, deprive the colony of a man's labor or his services as a guard. Even when the court gave sentences imposing harsh penalties, it showed a marked preference for those penalties which could easily be remitted. Hangings were comparatively few. No one was hanged for a crime against property. New England courts never sentenced offenders to limb amputations. In nearly all cases, corporal punishment meant whipping, and, even then, fewer strokes were given than was customary in England. This dichotomy between the strict sentences imposed by the courts and the lesser punishments accepted by local magistrates also extended to fines. There just wasn't enough cash money in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to allow every fine to be paid in full. Further complicating the problem of enforcing penalties was the extreme shortage of money in the colony. At various times during the first 10 years of settlement, corn, beaver, musket ball, and wampum were declared legal tender. It was against the law to sell or trade gold or silver money to the Indians, or even to carry it out of the colony and back into England. More than half of all the offenses in the record of the general court between 1630 and 1641 were punished by fines. More than half of those were remitted. 
With money in such short supply, the most repentant debtor must often have found it difficult to pay even a small fine, and the court, mindful of the shortage of labor, was clearly not prepared to sentence a man to idleness in prison for failure to pay a fine. So what were the capital offenses in early Massachusetts? Even if the death penalty was rarely imposed, there were 12 capital crimes from the earliest days of the colony. In 1641, the Great and General Court of Massachusetts established the first written laws to go into effect in New England, known as the Body of Liberties. It defined the individual rights of a freeman of the colony, of women, children, the enslaved, foreigners, and even brute creatures. That's right, the 1641 Body of Liberties made it illegal to exercise any tyranny or cruelty towards any brute creature which are usually kept for man's use, as well as to smite out the eye or tooth of his manservant or maidservant, or otherwise maim or much disfigure him. In this prototypical legal system, there were 12 capital crimes, each of which was accompanied by the scriptural justification for imposing death upon an offender. First up are the crimes of religion. Number one, if any man, after legal conviction, shall have or worship any other god but the Lord God, he shall be put to death. Number two, if any man or woman be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Number three, if any person shall blaspheme the name of God, the Father, the Son, or Holy Ghost with direct, express, presumptuous, or high-handed blasphemy, or shall curse God in the like manner, he shall be put to death. Then come the crimes related to killing. Number four, if any person commit any willful murder, which is manslaughter, committed upon premeditated malice, hatred, or cruelty, not in a man's necessary and just defense, nor by mere casualties against his will, he shall be put to death. Number five, if any person slayeth another suddenly in his anger or cruelty of passion, he shall be put to death. Number six, if any person shall slay another through guile, either by poisoning or other such devilish practice, he shall be put to death. Next up are the sex crimes. How exciting. Number seven. If any man or woman shall lie with any beast or brute creature by carnal copulation, they shall surely be put to death, and the beasts shall be slain and buried and not eaten. Number eight. If any man lieth with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination, and they both shall surely be put to death. Number nine. If any person committeth adultery with a married or espoused wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. The last three get a little bit complicated. Number 10. If any man stealeth a man or mankind, he shall surely be put to death. That sounds as though it makes slavery a capital crime, though there were enslaved Africans in Massachusetts by that time, and there would continue to be for over a century. Number 11. If any man rise up by false witness, wittingly and of purpose take away any man's life, he shall be put to death. Now this isn't just about lying, but perjury that results in someone's life being taken away, probably in a capital case before the courts. Lastly, number 12. If any man shall conspire and attempt any invasion, insurrection, or public rebellion against our commonwealth, or shall endeavor to surprise any town or towns, fort or forts therein, or shall treacherously and perfidiously attempt the alteration and subversion of our frame of polity or government fundamentally, he shall be put to death. Finally, a good old prohibition on treason. Under the earliest capital code, everything from murder and poisoning, to adultery and homosexuality, to idolatry and witchcraft could be punishable by death. While execution was rare in the first decades of the colony, when the English population of Massachusetts Bay was holding on by the skin of their teeth, it did happen, and it became increasingly frequent over the years. By the time Cotton Mather was in his prime, nearly a century after the colony was founded, executions were no longer rare at all. All executions at the time were performed publicly, 
and they quickly became common enough to spark a new type of Puritan sermon. By Cotton Mather's time, the execution sermon was a well-known genre. Writing in 2015 about the impending death sentence for Jokar Tsarnaev, Agnes Howard described the defining aspects of a Puritan execution sermon. A genre distinctive, if not unique, to New England Puritans, the execution sermon occupied an important role in the administration of justice in colonial Massachusetts well into the 19th century. The rhetorical form acknowledged that punishment had a moral meaning that the state by itself could not explain. Like many other places in the 17th and 18th centuries, public execution was a fact of life here, and thousands might come out to watch. Thus, in church before or after the actual execution, it was the task of a leading minister to assess the misdeeds of the convict, to connect his punishment somehow to the purpose and trajectory of the larger community, and to protect the event from veering into mere vengeance or rowdy spectacle, affirming the duty of civil government to assign punishment and the responsibility of the community to uphold standards of right. Execution sermons, importantly, reminded audiences that they and the convict alike were stained with sin. Criminals were not merely monsters, but in ways resembled others in the community who, but for the restraining grace of God, could also fall to wickedness. An execution sermon would usually be preached at the meeting house on the Sabbath, with the condemned in attendance. Perhaps again privately in an audience with the condemned, and then it would be printed and circulated beyond the immediate parish where the execution took place. As we'll see in a few minutes, you didn't even need to be the minister to the condemned to publish an execution sermon. Cotton Mather would do so for executions that took place as far away as Newport, Rhode Island. The first execution sermon in Massachusetts came with the last known execution in North America for bestiality. A young man named Benjamin Gould, or possibly Gord or Goad, as the spelling back then was erratic, was sent to the gallows in Roxbury in April of 1674. Samuel Sewell's diary records that Gould was about 17 years old and had committed filthiness in the noonday in an open yard with a mare. In keeping with the seventh capital crime in the Body of Liberties, the mare was first killed before young Gould mounted the scaffold himself. In response to this terrible deed, the Reverend Samuel Danforth published a sermon running to about 25 pages entitled, the cry of Sodom inquired into, which is considered the earliest surviving New England execution sermon. Danforth set the stage for all the execution sermons that would follow. His sermon outlines the scriptural justification for the execution, calls for the condemned man to repent, and warns those who are listening that the wider society must be reformed to avoid a similar fate. In it, he ticks off the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah, including masturbation, incest, prostitution, fornication, adultery, and, of course, bestiality, describing the scriptural prohibition against each. He explains that a death sentence is necessary, even for such a young offender, in order to preserve the church and their fledgling society on the edge of the wilderness. This, his sin, is exceedingly grievous in the sight of God. It is an abomination. It is confusion. It defiles the land. The earth groans under the burden of such wickedness. You pity his youth and tender years, but I pray, pity the holy law of God, which is shamefully violated. Pity the glorious name of God, which is horribly profaned. Pity the land, which is fearfully polluted and defiled." And he warns that young Gould's execution is the only way that they will be able to avoid God's wrath themselves. If we will not pronounce such a villain accursed, we must be content to bear the curse ourselves. The land cannot be cleansed until it hath spewed out this unclean beast. The execution of justice upon such a notorious malefactor is the only way to turn away the wrath of God from us and to consecrate ourselves to the Lord and obtain his blessing upon us. At the time of that first execution sermon, Cotton Mather was barely a tween, but his father Increase was well established as the minister of the North Church in Boston. The following year, Increase delivered his own execution sermon for two indentured servants who were convicted of killing their master with an axe. 
when it was set in type on John Foster's press, the sermon titled The Wicked Man's Portion became the first book to be printed entirely in the town of Boston. It was popular enough that new editions were still being printed a decade later, when Cotton Mather was all grown up and execution sermons were becoming a family affair. In the spring of 1686, James Morgan was convicted of murder. On Sunday, March 7th, he was taken to the Second Church, where Cotton Mather, then about 23 years old, preached a sermon against his crimes. And now let the everlasting Savior look down in much mercy on you. Oh, that he would give this murderer, an extraordinary sinner, a place among the wonders of free grace. For the Thursday meeting on March 11th, Morgan was taken back to Second Church, where Increase Mather preached another sermon over him. In his biography of Increase, Michael Hall says, He was at the height of his powers as an orator, and his audience surely numbered several thousand in the multi-tiered meeting house. Starting calmly, Mather moved relentlessly toward an emotional climax in which he turned to the condemned man, rehearsed his confession, pleaded with him to believe in Christ, and assured him that if his repentance were sincere, on the very moment of his death, his soul would be transported to the right side of God, his sins forgiven, and his eternal life in heaven assured. I cannot forgive you, Mather told the prisoner before him. Only Christ can judge your sincerity. When he was done, James Morgan was taken to the place of execution. The young Cotton Mather walked beside him, holding one final discourse with the condemned man as he was led to the gallows. Mather said, I'm come hither to answer your desires, which just now you expressed to me in the church, that I would give you my company at your execution. Morgan replied, I beseech you, sir, speak to me. Do me all the good you can. My time grows very short. Your discourse fits me for my death more than anything. After a short conversation, Mather took his leave, saying, Farewell, poor heart. Fare thee well. The everlasting arms receive thee. Morgan's last words were recorded as, Here I am, and know not what will become of my poor soul, which is within a few moments of eternity. I that have murdered a poor man, who had but little time to repent, and I know not what's become of his poor soul. Oh, that I may make use of this opportunity that I have. Oh, that I may make improvement of this little, little time before I go hence and be no more. Oh, let all my mind what I am saying now. I am a going out of this world. Oh, take warning by me and beg of God to keep you from this sin, which has been my ruin. O Lord, receive my spirit. I come unto thee, O Lord. I come unto thee, O Lord. I come unto thee. I come, I come. And with that, he was turned off the ladder to die. The sermons of both Mathers were published in a single volume. The one by Increase was titled, a sermon occasioned by the execution of a man found guilty of murder, and it was followed by Cotton's contribution under the title, The Call of the Gospel Applied. The final discourse with Morgan was taken from Cotton's diaries, and it was only publicly printed in later editions of the pamphlet. Cotton Mather seems to have really gotten a taste for the form of the execution sermon. Over the next 40 years, from 1686 to 1726, while Cotton was at the height of his influence in New England, some 20 volumes of execution sermons were published. Cotton Mather's words appeared in over half of them. While Cotton Mather would minister to sinners who were condemned to die for any number of offenses, his favorites seemed to be infanticide and piracy. He published at least three sermons on infanticide, and one called Pillars of Salt is remembered because it contained case studies on a dozen earlier New England cases that ended in execution. Sarah Threeneedles had been tried and convicted in Samuel Sewell's court of murdering her baseborn child. Early in the morning of September 26, 1698, Sarah felt the pangs of labor in the birth of her second illegitimate child. She got up, went to a nearby pasture, and delivered a baby boy. Then she simply walked away and left the infant to die of exposure. During her October trial, she identified the father as a local shopkeeper and pleaded that if he had lent her any support at all, it had not come to this. The court was unmoved, the father went unpunished, 
and Sarah was sentenced to die. Samuel Sewell recorded the final hours of Sarah's life. November 17th. Very fair, serene weather. Mr. Cotton Mather preaches at the South Meeting House. Sarah Three Needles, as an auditor, is a very vast assembly in the street full of such as could not get in. After lecture, Sarah Three Needles is executed. Mr. Woodbridge went to the place of execution and prayed with her there. When Cotton Mather published Pillars of Salt, it included not only the sermon he had preached on Sarah Three Needles' execution day, giving the scriptural justification for the death that had been ordered by the court, but also full case histories of 12 earlier capital cases. This created what one writer calls the first cumulative digest of domestic capital crimes to appear in New England. If piracy was Cotton Mather's other favorite topic for an execution sermon, he was lucky that his prime years aligned with the golden age of piracy. Back in July, we did a two-part special on Boston in the golden age of piracy. And if you've never heard them, Go back and look up episodes 34 and 36, and you'll hear a wealth of tales about the salty sea rovers who terrorized the coast of New England during this period. The Golden Age is considered to stretch roughly from 1650 to 1726, with the early period consisting mostly of English pirates preying on Spanish treasure vessels in the Caribbean. A middle period where pirate crews plied the pirate round sailing from their bases in North America to the Indian Ocean to rob trading vessels, and a later period where English and American naval crews were left unemployed after the end of the War of the Spanish Succession and turned to piracy along the American coast to make their fortunes. Following raids in 1632 by a daring pirate named Dixie Bull who had previously been a Boston resident, the New England coast was mostly free from pirates until the 1680s. However, news of the dangers faced by British shipping in faraway waters was enough to convince the Massachusetts legislature to specifically ban piracy with a law passed in 1674. The court, observing the wicked and unrighteous practices of evil men to increase, some piratically seizing of ships with their goods, and others by rising up against their commanders and seizing their vessels and goods at sea, for the prevention whereof and that due witness may be borne against such bold and notorious transgressions, this court doth order, and be it hereby ordered and enacted, that what person or persons soever shall piratically or feloniously seize any ship or other vessel, whether in the harbor or on the seas, or shall rise up in rebellion against the master, officers, merchant, or owners of any such ship or other sea vessel, Every such offender, if found in this jurisdiction, shall be apprehended, and, being legally convicted thereof, shall be put to death. Piracy was already banned by English law and subject to trial in an admiralty court, but this law allowed pirates who were caught locally to be tried and executed locally. This mattered to Boston's Puritan forebears. It mattered a lot. People like Cotton Mather considered piracy to be an especially heinous crime. It was, by definition, a crime against property, and it very frequently involved murder, which was already a capital crime. But the reason piracy was seen as so bad, and the reason it was deserving of its own set of laws, was its effect on the established social order. Early Massachusetts was a rigidly hierarchical society. The Puritans believed strongly in predestination, that one's place in society was determined by God before birth. Some people were elected, or chosen by God to be saved, while everyone else was fallen. The family had a father who was expected to instruct the family and make decisions, and then a mother, and then children, and then perhaps servants or slaves. The church had a minister, with the elders below him, then church members. A town would have wealthy merchants, then yeoman farmers and freemen, then foreigners, non-church members, servants, enslaved people, and Native Americans. Your place in this pyramid was predestined, so it was sinful to try to rise above your station. And since it was sinful, it was also illegal, with laws preventing people of lower classes from wearing clothes that should belong to a higher class, or otherwise putting on airs. It's no wonder that the leaders of this rigidly class-bound society felt threatened by pirates. A pirate ship during the Golden Age was radically democratic and egalitarian, 
by committing mutiny or seizing a ship, pirates had already condemned themselves to death if captured, so they lived outside the law and outside the normal strictures of society, free to create their own societies. Crews selected their own captains and officers by vote, lived according to a shared set of rules that they voted in, and were always free to leave if they felt their captain had mistreated them. Historian Marcus Redeker describes what life was like on a pirate ship at that time. The early 18th century pirate ship was a world turned upside down, made so by the Articles of Agreement that established the rules and customs of the pirate's social order, hierarchy from below. Pirates distributed justice, elected officers, divided loot equally, and established a different discipline. They limited the authority of the captain, resisted many of the practices of the capitalist merchant shipping industry, and maintained a multicultural, multiracial, multinational social order. They sought to prove that ships did not have to be run in the brutal and oppressive ways of the merchant service and the Royal Navy. The pirate ship was democratic in an undemocratic age. The pirates allowed their captain unquestioned authority in chase and battle, but otherwise insisted that he be governed by a majority. As one observer noted, they permit him to be captain on condition that they may be captain over him. In 1689, two pirate crews were in the Boston jail awaiting their date with the executioner. The crew, led by Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins, had stolen a ship that was anchored in Boston Harbor near Lovell's Island and gone raiding along the Massachusetts and Maine coast before being cornered by provincial ships and captured in a bloody battle. William Coward's crew had also stolen a small ship that was anchored in Boston Harbor, but ran it aground on Cape Cod and got arrested before they could capture any treasure. The diary of Samuel Sewell reveals that he and Cotton Mather both visited and prayed with the pirate prisoners on January 17, 1690. Went after dinner to the townhouse to Mr. Addington, from thence to Mr. Browning's, from thence with Cotton Mather to the prisoners who were condemned on Friday. Spoke to and prayed with Pounds and others, then with Coward, Johnson, and others. For what appear to be political reasons, all death sentences were commuted except one, so there would be no mass execution for Cotton Mather to publish a sermon on. In 1704, Mather would finally get the mass execution of pirates that he had been dreaming of. Jack Quelch and his crew were the first pirates to be tried by an admiralty court in Boston instead of being tried in the provincial court or shipped back to London. He had been the lieutenant commander of the brigantine Charles, a privateer vessel that sailed out of Marblehead in the summer of 1703 with a letter from Governor Joseph Dudley authorizing them to attack French or Spanish flag vessels. The crew had a more profitable scheme in mind, though. Before they even left Massachusetts Bay, they threw Captain Plowman overboard and elected Jack Quelch as their new captain. Turning south, Quelch and the Charles sailed to Brazil and captured at least nine Portuguese vessels, many of which were carrying rich cargoes. Before long, the hold of the Charles was full of Brazilian sugar, cloth, guns, and gold. In the spring of 1704, Captain Quelch turned the ship toward Massachusetts, confident that his hold full of spoils would buy him goodwill with the provincial authorities. Unfortunately, while Quelch and the crew had been at sea, Queen Anne had signed a treaty of alliance with the King of Portugal. Without knowing it, the crew of the Charles had been preying on the ships of a new ally. Upon their arrival, 43 members of the crew were quickly arrested in Marblehead and brought to Boston to stand trial. Seven were sentenced to death, and one had his sentence commuted at the last moment. As always, Samuel Sewell's diary tells us that Cotton Mather was on hand to tend to the pirates' souls. In the morning, I heard Mr. Cotton Mather pray, preach, catechize excellently the condemned prisoners in the chamber of the prison. Mather's sermon would later be published under the title, Faithful Warnings to Prevent Fearful Judgment. It follows the typical structure, justifying the death sentence, demanding repentance from the condemned, and warning the audience against sin. As he really settles into the groove, Cotton warns not only against piracy, but also against the legal practice of privateering as leading sailors down the primrose path. I remember that not very long ago I had occasion to preach a sermon at the prison upon those words from Jeremiah. 
He that get riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end he shall be a fool. A great number of the sinners then present had that combination of God soon executed upon them at the gallows. Oh, the displeasure of God, that now a greater number of such sinners have arisen and arrived among us. Will our merciful God at last sanctify these displays of vengeance? That never any more of them that see or hear these things may, after this, go to get riches and not by right. Let all people hear and fear, and never do thus wickedly any more. Yea, since the privateering stroke so easily degenerates into the piratical, and the privateering trade is usually carried on with so unchristian a temper, and proves an outlet unto so much debauchery and iniquity and confusion. I believe I shall have good men concur with me in wishing that privateering may no more be practiced. Mather's sermon concludes with what we now recognize as his typical warning, both to potential pirates and to the wider society in Massachusetts, on the dangers of becoming a pirate or harboring piracy. To conclude, it may justly be expected that we shall all endeavor to improve what we behold of evil-pursuing sinners in the surprising instances which by the providence of God are newly fallen out among ourselves. There has been a time when some have come and seduced and enchanted several of our young men to piratical courses, and there were some unhappy advantages which the sinners took to shelter themselves in the prosecution of their piracies. But the government of New England will, by a severe procedure of justice, forever make it an unjust thing to reflect on the country, as if such dangerous criminals might hope ever to be safely nested here. The condemned were paraded through town in a procession led by the silver oar representing the admiralty, surrounded by forty musketeers, the constables of the town, and a provost-marshal. When they reached Scarlet Wharf, Mather accompanied them in a boat that took them around the north end into the mouth of the Charles River. The gallows had been erected on the mudflats just off the foot of Copse Hill, where the people of the town would have the best view. Samuel Sewell's diary records what a morbid spectacle a mass hanging of pirates could become. But when I came to see how the river was covered with people, I was amazed. Some say there were 100 boats. 150 boats and canoes, saith Cousin Moody. When the scaffold was hoisted to a due height, the seven malefactors went up. Mr. Mather prayed to them, standing upon the boat. Ropes were fastened to the gallows. When the scaffold was let to sink, there was such a screech of the women that my wife heard it sitting in our entry next to the orchard and was much surprised at it. Yet the wind was southwest. Our house is a full mile from the place. In An Account of the Behavior and Last Dying Speeches of the Six Pirates, Mather recorded the behavior of Jack Quelch upon arriving at the gallows. Captain Jack Quelch, when on the stage, first he pulled off his hat and bowed to the spectators, and not concerned, nor behaving himself so much like a dying man as some would have done. Until the end, Quelch maintained his innocence. He claimed that all his prizes were taken legitimately under the mark of a privateer, and as such, his only crime was to bring a cargo of gold into Massachusetts waters and not share it with the authorities. His last words walk a fine line between penitence and defiance. Gentlemen, tis but little I have to speak. What I have to say is this. I desire to be informed for what I have done. I am condemned only upon circumstances. I forgive all the world, so the Lord may be merciful to my soul. They should also take care how they bring money into New England to be hanged for it. When it was printed, faithful warnings to prevent fearful judgments became the first of Mather's published execution sermons on the subject of piracy. It would not be his last. As Cotton Mather became comfortable with the form of the execution sermon, and his printed sermons became more and more popular, he realized that he didn't have to be the minister to the condemned to write a sermon about it. He didn't have to visit them in the jailhouse or witness their deaths. As a matter of fact, he didn't even need to be in the same colony as the condemned. On July 19, 1723, there was a mass execution of convicted pirates at Newport, Rhode Island. 
They were members of Captain Ned Lowe's crew. Lowe was one of the most notorious pirates of the era, a former resident of Boston who had turned pirate and earned a reputation for cruelly torturing his victims. In one engagement, he split his crew between two ships. One was captured and 35 survivors were brought to Rhode Island to stand trial. The governor and council for Massachusetts traveled to Newport and joined Rhode Island's governor in an admiralty court that handed down 26 death sentences. A first-person account describes what it was like to witness one of the largest mass executions in American history. Their black flag, with the portrait of death having an hourglass in one hand and a dart in the other, at the end of which was the form of a heart with three drops of blood falling from it, was affixed at one corner of the gallows. This is the flag they called Old Roger, and often they used to say they would live and die under it. Never was there a more doleful sight in all this land than while they were standing on the stage waiting for the stopping of their breath and the flying of their souls into the eternal world. And oh, how awful the noise of their dying moans. Despite having been 70 miles away in Boston at the time, Cotton Mather soon published a sermon titled Useful Remarks, an essay upon remarkables in the way of wicked men, about the death of the pirates. Since Mather did not pray over the pirates in the meeting house of the jail, there's less of a focus on trying to find redemption for the condemned. Since he was not actually present at the execution, there's no section recording the pirates' last words. Instead, this sermon is aimed squarely at his own flock, using the example of a terrible mass execution to urge them to follow the straight and narrow path. O impenitence, that in the way which wicked men have trodden are hastening down unto the dead, there are now to come unto you twenty-six and a crew together from the dead, who with a hoarse but loud voice terribly call upon you to repent of your sins and not persist in such crimes as have brought them to what they are now come unto. If you will not hear the warnings of your faithful pastors, hear the roarings of twenty-six terrible preachers, that in a ghastly apparition are now from the dead calling upon you to turn and live unto God. It was the hand of the glorious God which brought these criminals to die in a place where his faithful servants took uncommon pains for their instruction and conversion. And it may be, who can tell, there was some elect of God among them who may have their salvation in this astonishing way accomplished. But how much it will add unto the displays of sovereign and mysterious grace if you that have had their dying words and groans and pains before you may find the means of your salvation in them. Oh, take a due notice of what you have seen in the way which these wicked men have trodden, and in the fearful end which their way has brought them to. As we've seen, Cotton Mather took pride in his successes in getting pirates to repent at the last minute as the gallows loomed. However, the pirate whom he's best remembered for ministering to is the one where he saw the least success. William Fly was something of a pathetic figure as a pirate, but he became a towering giant in the eyes of some for his resistance to Cotton Mather and the authorities in Massachusetts. He enlisted as a bosun on a slave ship named Elizabeth in the spring of 1726, but early in the cruise, he and the crew became resentful of the abuse they suffered at the hands of the captain and officers. On May 27th, they mutinied, dragging the captain and first mate from their beds and throwing them overboard. The crew renamed the ship Fame's Revenge, elected William Fly captain, and began sailing up the east coast of North America. They stitched together a Jolly Roger and began attacking the ships they encountered along the coast. However, Fly and Fame's Revenge only managed to take a handful of ships before attacking the fishing fleet off Cape Ann. During one of the first engagements he fought in New England waters, the captive sailors he had aboard distracted Captain Fly, then overpowered him and took him in chains to Boston for trial. His piratical career had lasted only one month. In the week between Fly's capture and his execution, Cotton Mather tried all the tricks up his sleeve to get the pirate to publicly repent, providing a good example to his flock. The day after the trial, he made his first visit to the jail where William Fly and four other prisoners awaited their fates. He warned them that dying without repenting their sins would doom their souls. The great God is angry with you. 
you are within a few days to be thrown into those hands, which if you die in ill terms with heaven, you will find it a fearful thing to fall into. Now, tis only in the way of repentance that you can be saved from the inconceivable miseries of hell. Fly laughed in Cotton Mather's face, taunting him and refusing to make any expression of remorse. Asked if he was sorry for his role in killing the captain who had treated him and the rest of the crew so cruelly, Fly said, "'Tis a vain thing. I won't die with a lie in my mouth." Mather was so shocked that he left the jail, saying that he hoped to find Fly in a better frame when he returned. Mather returned to the jail three days later, and the two argued at length. Fly held his ground, stating that any expression of remorse or repentance would be a lie, and he would not go to the gallows with a lie in his mouth. Asked to confess his sins, he refused to call the killing of the original captain and officers as a murder, saying his crime was committed in service to a greater good. I can't charge myself. I shan't own myself guilty of any murder. Our captain and his mate used us barbarously. We poor men can't have justice done us. There is nothing said to our commanders, let them ever so much abuse us, and use us like dogs. In a 1987 essay, Daniel Williams described Fly's reaction to Cotton Mather's advances. Fly would not be humbled. Not for all the boiling lakes of fire and brimstone paraded before him by the ministers would he throw off his defiance. He rejected all importunities to repent, and since submission to God required submission to man, implicit in his rejection was a further refusal to submit to either ministers or magistrates. Rather than surrender his own self-righteous sense of self, his pirate pride, he preferred to risk eternal damnation. Fly's resistance was not done yet. In a more typical trial and execution, the condemned would attend church on the Sabbath day before they went to the gallows. William Fly refused to do even this, though his three co-conspirators attended Cotton Mather's sermon. In the printed version of Vile Poured Upon the Sea, Mather would describe his attempts to redeem the stubborn pirate and explain Fly's absence in church on that last day. He declined appearing in the public assemblies on the Lord's Day with the other prisoners to be under the appointed means of grace because, forsooth, he would not have the mob to gaze upon him. Other pirates and murderers who had been counseled by Cotton Mather seemed willing to heed his advice in their last hours. They made penitent speeches from the gallows, said the prayers he had recommended, and generally made themselves into perfect examples of reformation to be held up before the community. William Fly refused to have any part in this farce. As he walked to the gallows, Fly adopted a jaunty air, carrying a small bouquet of flowers and tipping his hat occasionally to people in the crowd. Cotton Mather records it in the vial. He seemed all along ambitious to have it said that he died a brave fellow. He passed along to the place of execution with a nosegay in his hand and making his compliments when he thought he saw occasion. Arriving there, he nimbly mounted the stage and would fain have put on a smiling aspect. He reproached the hangman for not understanding his trade and with his own hands rectified matters to render all things more convenient and effectual. Even on the scaffold, seen as the proper stage for prayer and remorse, Fly put on a smile and used his sailor's skill with a rope to correct the executioner's shoddy noose. Asked for his last words, William Fly didn't offer any of the platitudes Cotton Mather had suggested. Instead, he had a warning for the captains and shipmasters in the port city of Boston who might so abuse the men as to tempt them to turn pirate. He only said that he would advise the masters of vessels to carry it well to their men, lest they should be put upon doing as he had done. One of the pirates had been given a reprieve, so two of the other condemned men shared the scaffold with Fly, and they were willing to follow Cotton Mather's script. Cole and Greenville had much greater signs of repentance upon them. They made their prayers and seemed continually praying and much affected. They desired the spectators to take warning by them, and they mentioned profane swearing and cursing with drunkenness and Sabbath-breaking as crimes which were now particularly grievous to them. A minister present, having made pertinent and pathetic prayer, 
The officer, willing that all was possible might be done for their good, after some time asked them whether they would have another prayer. Fly did not accept the offer, but said, If the other two be ready, I am. However, the other two desiring it, another such prayer was made by another minister, and after that, another by a third, with which they joined attentively, while Fly looked about him unconcerned. Until the moment the rope tightened around his neck, William Fly refused to acknowledge the authority of cruel ship's captains, the civil government of Massachusetts, Cotton Mather, or God himself. To turn this battle of the wits, one that he had ultimately lost, into a valuable lesson for the faithful, Cotton Mather would have to write a different sort of sermon. The vile poured upon the sea wouldn't be a tale of sinners redeemed, but rather the folly of dying without accepting the Lord's grace. They who die in their sins, these die without wisdom. Sin is folly. Every sinner is a fool. If men die before they are converted from the error of their ways, they die without wisdom. To die unpardoned is to die miserable. To die with sin unbewailed and unforsaken and unrepented of is to die unpardoned. So to die, with folly not abandoned nor forgiven, to die with the wrath of God yet abiding on the soul, to die and carry away a guilty conscience which will gnaw and scourge and vex the soul and be within it a worm that will never die, certainly tis no wisdom to die so. By the 1720s, Mather was privately gloating in his diaries about the psychological toll he was taking on the pirates of New England. He claimed that pirate captains would force their prisoners to curse the name of Cotton Mather. One of the first things which the pirates who are now so much the terror of them that haunt the sea impose on their poor captives is to curse Dr. Mather. The pirates now strangely fallen into the hands of justice here make me the first man whose visits and company and prayers they beg for. Some of them under sentence of death choose to hear from me the last sermon they hear in this world. Pirates may have asked for Mather to pray for them after their capture, but when we researched pirates and the rules they imposed on themselves aboard ship last summer, we found no evidence that prisoners or new members of any crew were required to curse Cotton Mather's name. Though it was certainly wrapped up in personal pride, Mather also believed that his ministry to the pirates benefited his parishioners in Boston. Williams says, Mather's pirates struggled to repent, and he used their struggles to instruct. The overall lesson he wanted to inculcate was evangelical. If even the worst of sinners, such as murderous pirates, could be saved through repentance and conversion, then all New Englanders could be confident that they too might achieve redemption by turning to God. Regardless of whether their penitence was brought on by a sincere change of heart or by a sudden fear of hell, condemned pirates offered vivid proof that once humbled and penitent, even the most hardened of sinners might be turned into saints. William Fly would be the last of Cotton Mather's execution sermons for pirates. And Redeker argues that the death of William Fly marked the end of the golden age of piracy. From the end of the War of the Spanish Succession to this point, there had been a shared set of traditions and practices among pirates, passed down in an unbroken chain through a succession of crews, by splintering, by sailing and consorts, or by other associations, roughly 3,600 pirates, about 90% of all those active between 1716 and 1726, fitted into two main lines of genealogical descent. Captain Benjamin Hornigold and the pirate rendezvous in the Bahamas stood at the origin of an intricate lineage that ended with the hanging of John Phillips' crew in 1724. The second line spawned in the chance meeting of the lately mutinous crews of George Lothar and Edward Lowe in 1722 culminated in the executions of William Fly and his men in July of 1726. It was primarily within and through this network that the social organization of the pirate ship took on its significance, transmitting and preserving customs and meanings, and helping to structure and perpetuate the pirate's social world. In the end, Fly's body was gibbeted. It was taken out to Nix's mate, a tiny island in Boston Harbor alongside the main shipping channel. There, a scaffold was erected. 
William Fly's body was wrapped in chains and hung up on the scaffold as a spectacle for the warning of others, especially seafaring men. He had refused to attend church before his execution because he would not have the mob to gaze upon him. Yet now everyone who sailed through Boston Harbor would gaze upon him. His gibbeted body would serve as a warning for any young sailor who was tempted to, as pirate Ned Lowe put it, make a black flag and declare war against all the world. To learn more about Cotton Mather, pirates, and execution sermons in Puritan Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 066. We'll have links to the full text of each sermon we've discussed, the text of the 1641 Body of Liberties, and to a self-aggrandizing entry in Cotton Mather's diaries. We'll also link to the Daniel Williams essay, Puritans and Pirates, A Confrontation Between Cotton Mather and William Fly in 1726, and the essay, Crime and Punishment in Early Massachusetts, by Jules Zanger. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Writing as the A.Ham on Twitter, Alexander Hamilton shared episode 62 about the duel between William Austin and James Henderson Elliott. You might think that a podcast about dueling would hit a little too close to home, but he commented, If any of you are looking for a new podcast, here's an excellent one to add to your regular listening schedule. Thanks, Colonel. Also commenting on Twitter, Jackson Chief Elk responded to episode 64 about the history of the Harvard Indian College. He noted the tragic irony that the school closed due to low attendance, saying, probably because 90% of Atlantic Indians had died due to disease at that point. A listener named Peter wrote in with a couple of comments on our New Year's show about Boston's series of annexations. The first is a correction. Great show number 61. Two things. In Massachusetts, towns splitting up like West Roxbury and Roxbury was very common as railroads came in. You said it was against the trend. And you called all city planners nerds without really providing a counterargument to annexation. Fifteen municipal governments more efficient than one? And how much affordable housing has each of those municipalities built? Isn't that situation a crisis? Now, that last part's probably because it can be hard to convey sarcasm over audio. We assure faithful listeners that we only called out city planning nerds because I'm a bit of a planning nerd myself. Peter continues, Nerd to nerd, the booming cities that annexed back then have more tools to deal with their problems now than we do. Also, I just discovered that there's a Boston history podcast, so I'm sure to be addicted. A different listener who is also named Peter had some feedback on episode 35, which aired last July. I can't tell if your podcast has a comment section, so I don't know whether this has already been brought to your attention, although I'd be surprised if it hasn't. But I was just now catching up with an old episode of yours, and my ears still hurt. It was your episode 35, the BSO in World War I. The name was mentioned several times, and each time the host said Wagner, like what a dog does with his tail. It's pronounced Wagner. I'm 64 years old, and I've been listening to classical music all my life, and I have never once heard it pronounced Wagner. And not just among music lovers, but some years ago, when the Israeli Philharmonic decided to play Wagner for the first time, it was in all the news, because some of his operas are regarded to have anti-Semitic themes. So the decision attracted much controversy, but even the newsreaders I heard got it right. Please tell me that I am not the first listener to tell you this. To which we can only respond, Es tut mir leid. Wir haben nichts dabei gedacht. Es war mal, wenn ich Deutsch mit einem Hannoverschen Akzent sprechen könnte. Leider kann ich jetzt nur noch ein bisschen sprechen. Darum und because of my degree in music, I figured it would be okay to anglicize Richard Wagner's name. Sorry we wounded you so badly. If you would like to get in touch with us about something other than classical music, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're hubhistory on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the contact us link. While you're on the site, 
hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>